Like Dylan said, my name is Corey Hall, and I serve as one of the deacons here at Frontline Downtown. I've been a member of this church for 11 or 12 years and been on staff for five. And in my conversations with other single people, when talking about dating and marriage and the calling of singleness, very similar lines of conversation come up, much like what was in that video. We talk about the wild world of online dating. We talk about the lack of prospects or seeming lack of no prospects in the church for dating or in people's community groups. Women who are 25 and women who are 45 share how they thought they would be married by now. Guys talk about decision fatigue and how to date well in the midst of career pressure and stress. We hit on concepts like the feeling of being called to singleness or marriage, and we talk about the nagging feeling of loneliness that often occurs for single people. In the pursuit of God, the area of faithfulness and fulfillment around our singleness can bring out all sorts of feelings that we either complain about or hold on to and don't express out loud. We hold on to these intermingling desires to be content, to lament, to cry, to celebrate, to ask God for a new season, to be upset with the season that we're in. Our days, much like the Psalms, are a songbook of joy and sorrow, of rich community and loneliness on the same page. I love being single. I love the richness and depth of my community. I love being able to bring my whole single self into my friendships. I love not having to plan my day around what anybody else wants to eat or do or what time they want to wake up. Once, once a month, I give myself a Saturday to sleep in to the tornado siren. It's beautiful. <laughs> I love being able to hop in my car and take a spontaneous trip whenever I want or to blast my music in my car or my home. I love buying plants and no one telling me I have too many. I don't have too many. I love to pour my heart and my time and my life out for the things that God has stirred my passions for to use my singleness for his glory and for my good. But there are also moments when I think about marriage. There are moments when I think about dating or children. I wonder if this season of singleness for me is a season or a lifelong call. I often wrestle with the feeling of loneliness that wedges its way into the feeling I have of contentment. Data shows us that even before the pandemic struck, people were dealing with loneliness. And contrary to what some people might believe, the younger you are in America, the more likely you are to experience loneliness. One in three boomers said that they have experienced a feeling of loneliness in the past week. But over half of Gen X and millennials have said the same. And the rates of feeling lonely don't differ that much between single and married people. 44% of people who are married who were surveyed by Barna said that they have felt the feeling of loneliness in the previous week, while 61% of single people feel the same. Loneliness and the grief and hurt and shame that sometimes attach to that feeling of loneliness is a form of suffering. And suffering meets its end and it finds its hope through processing that suffering in light of the character of God. So today I want to talk a little bit about that how to sit with Jesus in seasons of suffering, particularly in the ways that singleness can bring suffering about. Talking about suffering can feel like a heavy topic, and for many in this room, it can bring up a plethora of emotions, some that we may want to leave buried. And I know that this year and the last couple of years have brought a lot of personal joy, but also collected sorrow for many of us as we've tried to process what's been happening with the effects of this pandemic but we know that the reality is God meets us in whatever year, whatever time, and whatever season we have. 
So my prayer tonight is that you will leave this room with more hope for yourself and more hope for this world. Because in processing our response to suffering and in processing our seasons of singleness, we will be drawn closer to Jesus and leave a little more in love with him. So as I share, I'm not talking about trying to solve the problem of singleness or eradicate it or giving you some way to work around it. I'm sharing about the very profoundly Christian idea of moving through suffering, of living with bold joy and hope in the midst of it. There are many types of suffering that we fragile humans endure, but to help you think through this, I want to look at three overarching categories. Suffering caused by our own sin, suffering caused by the sin of others, and suffering because of a broken, fallen world. After the fall, how we relate to creation, to our bodies, how we relate to each other and to the world has completely changed. And these categories play out differently for each one of us. There are too many different types of suffering to name, but let's think about the wide variance of sufferings that we encounter in each of these categories. Suffering can be chronic illness, pain, or disability. It can be seasons of dryness in your walk with God, not being able to hear from God or experiencing doubt. It can be seasons of dryness in your walk with your community or feeling lonely or isolated. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be poverty, being physically or emotionally hurt or abused by someone, consequences from our own sinful behavior, financial or work stress, addiction, eating disorders, loneliness of all sorts, mental illness, prolonged depression and anxiety. It can be feeling the deep longing for friendships. There's so much sorrow in this fallen world, but we know that sorrow is not new. Stories of suffering fill the pages of our holy scriptures, stitched in between those stories of redemption and grace and mercy. We see so much of the way that God meets people in their suffering. The way he meets us in the midst of it is all at once unique and universal. In the seasons of singleness that we have dealt with, we experience very unique types of suffering, but we also experience universal suffering stress, loss, grief, everyone experiences it. But then they're compounded with the unique sufferings of being a single person, feeling alone or unwanted or undesired, feeling this overwhelming desire to be married and not having it, being overwhelmed by the idea of dating or marriage, processing through broken engagements or divorce, or processing through the sin patterns we've walked out in our dating relationships. We can often wonder if we're the only one who's experienced these things or if we think about them too much. Some of us wonder if God is displeased with us because we focus so much on our circumstances or condition. We long for the contentment that scripture talks about in Philippians, but we don't understand how to get there or how God by his very nature will lead us to that contentment. We can see in the scriptures the ways that God specifically encounters people as they suffer. Men who are called up and out of their difficult circumstances to righteousness and growth. Women who were often viewed in their culture as lowly, having their heads lifted high by a God who meets them in their pain with his presence and his promises. Think about these people in scripture. Hannah, who desired to have a child. Moses, who led an unruly people in the midst of his own pain. Leah, whose husband rejected her. Ruth, whose husband died, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, who lost her husband and both of her sons. David, whose whole life was marked by war and pain caused by his own desires. Asaph, who wrestled with doubt as he wrote the Psalms. Paul, who felt the weight of the thorn constant in his side. Mary, who saw Jesus crucified and buried. 
God met them in their pain with his presence and with his promises. In our culture, men and women have been socialized to react to suffering in a couple of ways that I regularly encounter as I listen to people's stories. We're often taught to minimize or internalize our own suffering. We're told that there are people who are suffering from greater hardships than we are. We're told that we can't lament our loneliness or our difficult marriages or our difficult dating relationships because there are often others who have lives that are way, way more difficult than ours. We sometimes tell ourselves that we're to blame for the suffering that we endure, suffering that we didn't cause. Sometimes we minimize our role when we find ourselves suffering and choosing sin. For whatever reason, we push down those feelings, and at the extreme, we become detached or stoic. We become captives to our suffering. And then on the other hand, we have people, probably as a counter-reaction to the first claim, people who fall into the place of not hiding or minimizing their emotions while suffering, but of finding their identity in their emotions while suffering. We push people away out of fear of being hurt again or losing something again. We lash out in anger or despair. We embrace sinful patterns which bring greater suffering. We cling to other people as our fixer or our foundation, and we lay all our unhealthy expectations for our relationships in their lap. We can maximize our emotions so much to the point where they name us and they become our identity and we become a victim of our suffering. What I want to say clearly is the way that we respond to suffering is a good indicator of what type of help we need and how much help we need. It's a good indicator of how we see ourselves and how we see God. When we are enduring long seasons of sorrow or difficult traumatic events, we often need help. We may need counseling, medication, pastoral care, friends to come in close, psychiatric or medical care, and we shouldn't shy away from asking for that help and taking advantage of those methods when we need them because they can be a gift and a help alongside of what we receive from God. But there is a countercultural response to suffering that's offered in the scripture, not to minimize our suffering or maximize it and allow it to name us, but to feel. God never says to turn off our emotions. God displayed countless moments of Jesus in the scriptures displaying deep emotional depth. Jesus shed tears. He was filled with joy. He grieved. He was angry. Sadness came over him. He felt compassion. He felt sorrow. He showed astonishment and wonder. He felt distress. So we don't minimize or maximize our experiences or our emotions. We feel them, but we have to remember that our emotions should not form us. They should inform us of what we are feeling, of how we're responding, of how it relates to the actual reality of the situation that we're in. And how those feelings meet us is how we also see the world, how we see ourselves, and how we see God. We allow ourselves the freedom to do what Jesus did, to weep, to feel distress, to feel angry, to feel. In the book, The Cry of the Soul, the authors say this about our emotions. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. 
we forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. And this is so true. Change comes when we, in vulnerability, cry out and allow God to lead us into a place of encountering his character and being formed by his word. We see him do this again and again in scripture. Psalm 34, 17 through 18 says this, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Job 5, 8 through 11 says, As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who are mourning are lifted to safety. These words give me a lot of hope. As someone who is single and has at times lamented and wrestled with that vocation and wanted to be married or to have children, I have received the gambit of bad dating and marriage advice. I have experienced the ups and downs, mostly downs, of dating culture. Imagine your worst-case scenario on a first date. I have lived it twice. (laughs) Imagine your worst-case breakup scenario. It's probably how I broke up with my high school boyfriend. He planned a scavenger hunt around our entire school building, getting my teachers and friends and the high school choir involved. My worst nightmare. So I taped a very neatly written short note on his locker. (laughs) Said, I'm done. Thank you very much, Corey. (laughs) By the grace of God, I've matured some. (laughs) I've been told countless times that I can be content in my singleness, and when I'm not looking, God's going to just bring my spouse around the corner. I've been invited to singles events where I've been asked to make a list of all the things I want in a spouse and to pray over it, knowing that one day God was going to answer my prayer. A little someday your prince will come prophetic word, if you will. The problem is, while we may desire a spouse, that desire may stay unmet. For many of us in this room, a spouse is not promised. I don't want to be that person, but I am. A spouse is not promised, because we know that not even tomorrow is promised to us. What is promised is that we will experience sorrow in this world, and it is also promised that that sorrow will one day be turned to joy. I know that there are some of you in this room who hold anger or resentment toward God because you want to be married and you're not, because you're still single and you haven't dated or had prospects, or because the relationships that you've had have failed. I know that there are some of you in this room who are processing through guilt or shame because you've crossed physical boundaries that you set in your current relationship, or because the sexual boundaries that you crossed in the past still haunt you. I know that there are some of you processing through the very difficult reality that somebody crossed your boundaries and committed sins against you. God is very near to you. I believe that he speaks a better word than shame. He speaks a word of mercy and grace. I know that there are some of you who find this whole thing so exhausting or hard to think about that you shut down and you don't want to think about your singleness. I know that the happy, excited person sitting next to you dragged you here. (laughs) I know. I talked to (laughs) y'all. I want you to know that God still wants you to open up that door and process these things with him. Talking about things often can bring up too many feelings that you don't want to wrestle with. But as Christians, we are called to do that wrestling work. 
Last year, I discovered the work of this artist I really love named Kelly Cruz. She's a painter who completed this series of paintings on the passion of Jesus Christ. If you've ever heard that term, the passion of the Christ, passion in that sense means to suffer. Not like passion, like fun. <laughs> it's suffering. But she has these beautiful paintings where she paints pictures of the suffering that Jesus endured on his road to the cross. And someone once asked her, like, why do you paint these hard, difficult things when you could paint really cool stuff like flowers? And she said this, I come to the passion of Jesus Christ because in Christ my loneliness and my suffering is diminished. Christ's suffering through the passion corresponds in some aspect to practically any kind of human suffering imaginable. The cross acts as a prism in this way, through which all suffering is split into its many facets. I find that there is no facet he cannot enter, not just because he knows me completely, but also because of the life he lived and the death he died. Christ endured a kind of suffering that is the worst I can imagine. He was fully alone. He had no consolation and God was silent. More important to me than the eradication of loneliness is the eradication of all suffering itself, which is the whole point of the horrific death of Jesus. Because of Christ's work on the cross, my journey through the valley of death has an end. The painful process has context and meaning that it didn't have before. I have often found myself wanting to escape from or ignore my pain in an attempt to speed up the healing process so I can go back to the way I was before, with no scar and no reminder of the pain, in an imagined state of perfection. The project has helped me to begin to understand suffering as a process and to see scarring as a mark of healing. It is important to notice that Christ, the God-man whose death reworked the very fabric of the cosmos, forever changing the material of the universe, chose to keep his scars after his resurrection. That is our hope in the midst of suffering. It's our hope in the middle of wrestling with our singleness. Our hope is that Christ, through his suffering, offers an end to our journey through the valley of death. That Christ meets us with his very presence through enduring pain as we have and with his promises by saving us from sin, death, and suffering through his work on the cross. That Christ meets us with his presence through the comforting work of the Holy Spirit and with his promises because he will yet return and rule and reign as king. We are met with mercy from a God that is too holy to fully grasp and yet so near to us that he holds us in his arms. We have hope, so take heart. Josh mentioned earlier the reality that singleness points to this greater picture of the new creation, and I don't want you to miss that because if you understand that picture, it will change the way that you think about your singleness. The reality is that our present state of singleness or marriage, our present life, our present circumstances, point to a future reality, a reality of eternal life in the new creation, and that in that age, many of the realities that we wrestle with now will be non-existent. For those who are married, their marriage is an imperfect picture of a perfect Christ and his bride, the church. For those of us who are single, our lives are a reminder that marriage is not the end or the goal, but that God has more in store for us than we can experience in the here and now. Jackie Hill Perry says this in one of her books. Jesus said there will be no marriage in the new creation. 
In that respect, we will be like the angels, neither marrying nor having been given in marriage. We will have the reality. We will no longer need the signpost. By foregoing marriage now, singleness is both a way of anticipating this reality and testifying its goodness. It's a way of saying this future reality is so certain that we can live according to it now. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. It's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is. 1 Corinthians summed this up very well for me by reminding us that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. I hope that in this moment, we can recognize that truth, that one day we will see face to face and we shall know fully. Until that day, I want us to hope for it. We hope knowing that in the midst of our suffering, our hope is not in the seen, but the unseen. And we hope knowing exactly who our hope is in and how he will ultimately fulfill that longing. Singleness is complex. The suffering that comes alongside of it is complex, and I am in no way trying to explain it all to you. What I'm trying to get you to do is to draw close to a group of people in this church or your church who also understand the weight of suffering and to draw you into a person, the person of Jesus, who understands suffering because he himself experienced it in so many deep ways, and he fulfills the promises of Scripture through his own suffering and the sacrifice of his own life. He offers us hope in the midst of our suffering because he himself is hope. God's goodness was on display through a suffering Savior, and his goodness is on display in us in this very room, though we are a suffering people. I may end this temporal life unmarried with no children as my legacy, but I will leave having seen the goodness of God in the land of the living Broken, suffering people being made heirs alongside Christ in the kingdom of God. A legacy of taking part in the work of God making children out of orphans. A single woman bound to a family unified by our love and our pursuit for our king. So I want to leave you with these words from scripture as we end this moment before we break into Q&A. But we have seen this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father God, I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you that our hope is sure and has its final end in you. God, I thank you for the promises of scripture. 
I thank you that no matter our season of life, you see us and you know us. So Father, I pray that tonight you would speak a better word to those hearts that are feeling bruised or hurt in their season of singleness. And God, I pray that those who are feeling joy and contentment in their singleness would share that gift with the people that they're in community with, that they would help people to wrestle with their loneliness and move towards joy and fulfillment and contentment in Jesus. Amen.